Be Christ's church. Impact the valley. Reach the world. All for the glory of King Jesus. Welcome to the North Roanoke podcast. Today, our lead pastor, Daniel Palmer, will be opening God's word for us. Our prayer is that you will encounter the living Lord as you hear his word proclaimed. All right, Psalm 33, church, Psalm 33. We basically just sang Psalm 33, for which I am grateful because I'm probably not the only one in this room who's in a battle and grateful that the Lord has already won. Psalm 33 is where we are this morning, and I want to thank, I want to begin by thanking Ethan for doing an exceptional job over the last couple of Sundays to give me a chance to, to really unwind and be with family. It was a great time. And at this point, hopefully you have found Psalm 33. It's uh, just about in the center point of your Bible if you're have, having trouble finding it. Psalm 33 spans 22 verses. 22 verses, and it's a song about singing a song. Psalm 33 is a song about singing a song. It's a song calling God's people to sing a new song to the Lord, celebrating what one commentator says is God's righteous character, creative power, and sovereignty. These qualities of God that make Him the only reliable foundation for trust and hope. So we're going to begin by reading all 22 verses, and then we're going to walk back through them together. Would you hear with me the word of the Lord? Shout for joy in the Lord, O ye righteous. Praise befits the upright. Give thanks to the Lord with the lyre. Make melody to him with the harp of ten strings. Sing to him a new song. Play skillfully on the strings with loud shouts. For the word of the Lord is upright, and all his work is done in faithfulness. He loves righteousness and justice. The earth is full of the steadfast love of the Lord. By the word of the Lord, the heavens were made, and by the breath of his mouth, all their host. He gathers the waters of the sea as a heap. He puts the deeps in storehouses. Let all the earth fear the Lord. Let all the inhabitants of the world stand in awe of him. For he spoke, and it came to be. He commanded, and it stood firm. The Lord brings the counsel of the nations to nothing. He frustrates the plans of the peoples. The counsel of the Lord stands forever. The plans of his heart to all generations. Blessed is the nation whose God is the Lord. The people whom he has chosen as his heritage. The Lord looks down from heaven. He sees all the children of man. From where he sits enthroned, he looks out on all the inhabitants of the earth. He who fashions the hearts of them all and observes all their deeds. The king is not saved by his great army. A warrior... It's not delivered by his great strength. The war horse is false hope for salvation, and by its great might, it cannot rescue. Behold, 
The eye of the Lord is on those who fear him, on those who hope in his steadfast love, that he may deliver their soul from death and keep them alive in famine. Our soul waits for the Lord. He is our help and our shield. For our heart is glad in him because we trust in his holy name. Let your steadfast love, O Lord, be upon us, even as we hope in you. Would you pray with me? God, our Father, we thank you for this psalm. We thank you for this reminder that you are worthy of our praise and that you are the one who secures our victory through the offering of your Son. God, we ask this morning that no matter where we find ourselves, no matter what battle we find ourselves in, that we would heed the command of this song, that we would be a people rejoicing in God and hoping in God. All to the glory of God. We ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. So this morning, I want to share with you some instruction from Psalm 33 about those of us, which I suspect in one way or another would be all of us, uh, who are in a battle. Who do we look to and how do we handle it? And the, the first thing we see in verses 1 through 3 is that God is victorious, and, and because God is victorious, fresh awareness of our need for the Lord, the fact that, that we can't secure victory ourselves and that God can should lead us to fresh praise of the Lord. So our awareness of our need for God should lead us to praise of God. In, in verse 1, Psalm 33 opens in the way that Psalm 32 concludes. It, it has a command for us, the people of God, to shout for joy in the Lord. To shout is to, to sing out or to give a ringing cry. And it's, it's a command. It's not a suggestion. It is for the righteous. Who are the righteous? The righteous, chapter 32 told us, are those who are forgiven by the Lord and those who are waiting on Him in this troubled world. These are the ones who let their praises ring out in the Lord. The point isn't just to be noisy, right? The point is there's something motivating this joy that, that leads forth in singing and in shouting. The point of the noise is the Lord. The Lord is the source of joy. We shout because we are in the Lord. And because of Jesus, He is also in us. Jesus says in John 15, 4, Abide in me and I in you. And look at the second line of verse 1. Such praise befits the upright. Now, we don't often use the word befits, do we? I mean, you could probably live 365 days and not use the word befits. It just means it's fitting. It's appropriate. In other words, being loud about the Lord isn't just allowed, it's right. It's appropriate. And there's some cultures and traditions and contexts where you almost feel like you, you can't get above a whisper because it's, we're talking about God. But this psalm says, shout, make noise, be glad in the Lord. In fact, it's appropriate if you are a forgiven sinner rescued by God to do so. Shouts of praise, for the, are, shouts of praise are right for the upright 
Why? Because praise takes our eyes off of ourselves and fixes our gaze on the one truly worthy of our praise. Now, some people take this to the other extreme and they think, you know, if you're not noisy all the time, then you're, you're not godly. And one commentator offers a helpful corrective in this regard. He says, look, hysterical emotionalism and bizarre noises and screaming are not found anywhere in scriptural worship. The joyful noise does not draw attention to the noise maker. It begins with a pure heart and radiates upward, finding expression in ways that honor God. So the Lord commands our enthusiastic praise, not because God needs it, but because we need him. He's the only one who eternally satisfies. Ogden writes this, enjoyment of God spontaneously overflows in praise. We go to an enjoyable movie, and what do we do when we go to an enjoyable movie? If you go to a movie with friends, you go into the theater, and you walk out of the theater, what do you do if it was a good movie? You say, man, wasn't that a great movie? What about this scene? What about when this guy did that? What about when we thought he was going to die, and then he didn't die, and then someone came and rescued It was an amazing movie, and it's the, the praise of the event that completes the event, right? In a similar way, in our relationship with God, when we go to God as deliverer and we encounter who he is, we don't just go like, yep, that's right. No, it leads us to praise this great God. You know why some Christians are so sour? Some Christians are so stinking sour because they're suppressing the very praise of God that results in the overflow of joy and meditating on who he is. You're meant to have joy in God. You're not going to enjoy God if you're constantly stifling the satisfaction that the Lord supplies. Don't sit in silence holding back what God has done for you and in you to deliver you. In verse 2, God's people are commanded to give thanks. To give thanks with the lyre and to make melody to him or to sing to him with the harp of ten strings. Giving thanks and making melody are both commanded here. Now, many Israelites were musicians. When the, when the ark of God was brought into Jerusalem, King David in 1 Chronicles 15, 16, commands the chiefs of the Levites to appoint their brothers as the singers who would play loudly on musical instruments and on harps and lyres and cymbals to, to raise sounds of joy, we're told. And what's interesting is in the New Testament, this praise is not given to a specialized set of musicians. Sorry, Paul. But it's not, right? The early church didn't have amplification. They didn't have any of the tools and resources that we have up here. They didn't have synths. They had the voices of the people of God. And in the New Testament, because we've all been rescued by Christ, the congregation has become the choir. We are all commanded to lift our voices together because the temple is no longer in a building that sits uh, among men. The temple has become in us. He dwells within us and we are all commanded to be a part of this choir that Colossians 3.16 says, sing psalms and hymns and spiritual songs with thankfulness in our heart to God. And I'm so thankful for Paul and our praise team that recognizes their job is not to impress us with a performance, but to facilitate the praise of God by all the people 
of God. So in verse 1 and 2, we are commanded to praise the Lord with joyous noise and with thankfulness. Then in verse 3, the commands continue, sing to him a new song, which we just did. And play skillfully. Don't play sloppily. Play with skill, with excellence for the Lord. All accompanied, of course, by, look at verse 3, the end of verse 3, shouts of joy. Now this is a different word for shout from the word we saw in verse 1. This word for shout means shout fitting for victory in battle. It's the same word that's used when the people of Israel walk around Jericho on the last day and then they give a shout and the walls fall down. It's a shout of victory and of conquering. God's people are summoned to sing a new song here and in Psalm 40 verse 3 and 96 1 and 98 1 and 144 verse 9 and Isaiah 42 10 and Revelation 5 9 and Revelation 14 9. The new song in every context is celebrating the Lord's victory over his enemies and the forces that come against his people. And as those who know Sin and death are vanquished by King Jesus. We, of all people, should be those who sing enthusiastically and joyfully and with thanksgiving. And what should we sing? Not just old songs about the old, old story about a Savior who came from glory, but new songs that celebrate the freshness of His victory in the battle that we are facing right now. For in Him, even in the deepest storms, We know Lamentations 3.22 and 23 is true. The steadfast love of the Lord never ceases. His mercies never come to an end. They are new every morning and great is His faithfulness. Church, a faithful God is worthy of fresh songs celebrating Him. The freshness of our singing is because of the faithfulness of our God, a God who never fails no matter what we face. Which leads us to verses 4 all the way through 17. This, this big section where the big idea is this. It's just, just one sentence. We praise the Lord because of who He is. We praise the Lord because of who He is. And then the psalmist is going to spend a lot of time reminding us who God is in the face of our battle. In the latter verses of this psalm, the battle theme that is implied by a new song is made clear in verses like 16 when it says the king is not saved by his great army. Or verses like verse 20, but the Lord is our help and shield. In a world where nothing and no one else can deliver, the Lord is a reliable savior of anyone who will abandon all the false hopes that the world offers and hope in God alone. Which is why verse 4 begins with the word for. Verses 1 through 3, praise God, praise Him with thanksgiving, praise Him loudly. Verse 4, why? For, and then he tells us that we can praise Him because of His character. Verses 4 and 5, we can praise Him because He is a powerful creator. Verses 6 through 9, we can praise Him because He has an unfailing counsel. Verses 10 through 12, and we can praise Him because He has a comprehensive perspective. There's nothing that He does not see. Verses 13 through 15. So if you fall asleep, you got the summary all the way through 17. And I'll wake you up in a little bit for the application in about 15 minutes, okay? But we praise him for his character because he's creator, because he has an unfailing counsel, and because he has a comprehensive perspective on everything. 
He sees every heart, every detail, nothing surprises God. And it's that God who's with you in your battle. In verses 4 and 5, God's character is featured. It is what leads us to praise. He is not the Lord of the bait and switch. He's not like a timeshare salesman. Some of you bought that timeshare. It's going to be great. You're going to be able to take a vacation every year. You're going to buy in. And then they start telling you you got to buy points and you got to have maintenance fees. And the next thing you know, you're spending more to maintain a timeshare than you would have spent just to get, take a vacation wherever you wanted to take a vacation. And you're like, how do I get rid of this stupid thing? That's not God. God is not the God of the bait and switch. His word is upright. All his work, verse 4, is done in faithfulness. What does that mean? It means his words are true, and God is true to his word. Church, I've made promises, and I've broken them. To the best of my recollection, never intentionally, but most often because I made a promise, and then I encountered circumstances or challenges that I didn't anticipate when I made the promise, and I, and I couldn't overcome those circumstances or those challenges. I, I think of my kids when I've been like, yes, we'll go to the store, and then something happens uh, in the church family, and I've got to go to the hospital instead of making good on that promise for that evening. Sometimes that happens, and my, my kids understand sometimes dad... Dad's promises are qualified by conditions and circumstances that he doesn't know are going to arise. Aren't you glad to know that God doesn't have the problem of circumstances or conditions arising that he was unaware of or that he was powerless to overcome? God never makes a promise that he can't keep. All of his work, not some of his work, but all of his work, not even most of his work, but all of his work is done in faithfulness. Faithfulness to what? To a standard, and the standard is to his word. God does what God says. As Longman writes, his word and his work are inseparable. His words are never empty. In verse 5, we get a vision for the completion of the Lord's work in the world. A, a day when not only the whole earth is filled with His glory, as Isaiah 6 tells us, but also when the Lord is known as glorious. Why? Because the whole earth reflects His goodness, His fundamental goodness, that He loves righteousness and justice. There will be a day in the world when righteousness always prevails, when justice is always done, a day when the whole earth is filled with the steadfast love of the Lord, verse 5b. Church, when our world doesn't make sense, when our hearts break over the brokenness of the world that we see on the news, over the brokenness that we experience in our own families, over the brokenness in our own hearts, when our hearts break, what do we do? We look to the Lord and we remember that He does what He says and a day is coming for those who hope in Him when all things are set right all over the world for all of God's people for all time. He does what He says. He's faithful to His Word. And if we have any doubts about that, because I don't know about you, but sometimes I get in a battle that's bigger than I ever expected. There's, there's battles, and then there's battles. And what the enemy wants to do is to cause us to doubt the goodness of God. And lead us to despair 
and to drift. We'll miss one Sunday, and then we'll miss three, and then we'll miss a month, and then we'll be gone. And that's what Satan wants to do in the battle that you're fighting right now. What does this psalm remind us of next? Yes, your battle might be enormous. It might be huge. It might be so stinking massive. You don't know the way out. But stop looking at your battle and look to God. He goes straight from the promise that God will keep his promise to the bigness of God. And I think that's appropriate because some of you are in a big battle right now. If you have any doubts about the ability of God to overcome what you're facing, let me remind you, the psalmist says, of God's creative power. He made everything. He's the maker of heaven and earth. He takes us back to the first chapter of scripture, Genesis 1. It is there that God reveals himself to the, as the creator of all things, the heavens and the earth. In Genesis 1, we repeatedly find what words, and God said, and God said, followed by whatever it is that God created with his word. The entire universe, everything that exists, was created by one God. It is the work of of the mind of the one true God who spoke it all into existence. And in verse 6, we are reminded that the Lord made the heavens and set the stars in him by his word and by the breath of his mouth. Then in verse 7, we're told that the Lord controls the seas, gathering them as a heap and putting the, the depths in storehouses or perhaps in bottles. This is fascinating to me. How big is God? Compared to your problem? Well, let me tell you how great God is. He can put the depths of the oceans into a jar. That's how big God is. We, we were at the beach a couple weeks ago. There were riptide warnings and just the power of the ocean is so immense. It's so fast. And how big is God? He can bottle up all that and just put it in a jar. How big is God? He can... He can pile up the waters of the sea into a pile like somebody raking leaves in their backyard. That's how big God is. And in verse 9, we are reminded that the Lord spoke and the land appeared and stood firm. Before there was the world, there was the Lord. He has always existed. He is uncreated. He is the great I am because he is sheer existence. He always was and is and will be. Hebrews 11.3 puts it this way. By faith we understand the universe was created by the word of God so that what is seen was not made out of things that are visible. God just made it by his word. This is our God, maker of heaven and earth. And as Longman writes, this totally free God creates the world apart from any forces external to himself or his loving desire to bring the world into existence. God did not have to create to be complete. He didn't make us because he didn't want heaven without us. He made us out of love to enjoy him and his glory. He created a world to enjoy him 
out of love. The love that the Father and the Son and the Spirit had for one another overflowed into the creation of a world that could enjoy Him. And so our appropriate response is given in verse 8. What do we do in light of this God who is praiseworthy? What do we do in light of this love who will keep His promises? What do we do in light of this God who creates all? Verse 8, let all the earth fear the Lord. Let all the inhabitants of the world stand in awe of Him. That's what we were made for, to stand in awe of our great God. Unfortunately, many in our world do not stand in awe of the Lord. Instead, they stand against Him. We live in a world, as Psalm 2 puts it, where the nations rage and the peoples plot in vain. The kings of the earth set themselves and the rulers take counsel together against the Lord and His anointed. Now, who is His anointed? His anointed is the Messiah, Christ, King Jesus, who would leave the glory of heaven to run the race in our place, die the death we deserve to die, be risen on the third day so that God could remake our hearts and fit us to dwell in the world that He is remaking. It can be discouraging, can it not, to live in a world where ruling authorities are constantly trying to put off the Lord and Christ. The rest of creation gladly obeys the Creator. God speaks and creation obeys. But we who are made in God's image, what do we do? We rebel. The very humans that God made in His image to reflect His character, they so often reject God and strive to do away with Him rather than rather than standing in awe of him. So in verses 10 and 11 of Psalm 33, the, the psalmist contrasts the counsel of the Lord with the counsel of the peoples of the world. There's two plans that are running. The plans of God and the plans of the peoples opposed to God. And he reminds us that the Lord prevails. Our Lord wins. Our King wins. For now, in the middle of the battle that you're in, it sure may not feel like this is true. But the Lord brings the counsel of the nations to nothing. Literally, the text says He has brought the counsel of the nations to nothing. It's as good as finished. Because God reigns and rules in righteousness, the peoples of the world can play their games and monkey around with God and think they're opposing God. But God wins. And he frustrates the plans of the people. The word frustrates literally means to neutralize something. Every move the world tries to make to throw off God, God has another move they haven't considered. If the plans of the peoples and the plans of the Lord are a game of chess, God already knows every move that will be made and he is the checkmate. The world system and forces of darkness that seek to derail the Lord and His plan to have a world full of worshipers who will enjoy Him to the ends of the earth will be defeated. The plans of the world will come and they will go. Kings and kingdoms will rise and they will fall. But verse 11 promises the counsel of the Lord stands forever. The plans of His heart to all generations. Now don't misunderstand you might be in the fight of your life right now against Satan and the forces of darkness. Verse 11 is not a promise of a pain-free life. Rather, it is assurance that the Lord will keep His word. 
It is a promise that the one who created by his word will keep his word to the end. And praise the Lord, all who turn from their sin and trust in God's anointed son become new creatures fit for God's new creation, which one day soon will be comprised from people, do you see it in verse 11, of all generations. People from every generation who ran to the Lord Jesus for refuge. Your battle might seem like forever. I've been there. But it is actually the counsel of the Lord that stands forever. Your life compared to eternity, we are promised, is like a vapor. And even if your battle goes from this day to the day that God should call you home or Christ should come again, compared to eternity, your battle is so small. It doesn't feel small. But compared to eternity, it is the counsel of the Lord that stands forever. It is not your enemies that go on forever. It is not your battle that goes on forever. It is Yahweh and His counsel and His plan that wins and endures forever. So where is counsel, excuse me, where is blessing to be found? Verse 12. Blessed is the nation whose God is the Lord. Blessed is the nation whose God is the Lord. Did you know that True happiness is not found in keeping up with the Joneses or the Smiths or whoever your neighbors are. It's not found in career advancement or educational attainment. It's not found in a position or a title or in any other human achievement or label. We're not even blessed because we're Americans in the sense of biblical blessing. Now, it's great to live in this great country, but the blessing that God holds out for us, that He desires for us, that He gives to us is the blessing of what? Belonging to God. Blessed is the nation whose God is the Lord. It is having the Lord as our God that makes us blessed. Yahweh is the one true living creator God. He alone can rescue us. He alone can recreate us from the inside out and make us a part of his people, his nation, the nation he has chosen as his heritage. The Lord in his amazing grace has chosen all who run to Jesus from the rebellion of this world and call upon his name and trust in him to be his own heritage. God has chosen, praise God that he has chosen, to save sinners so that even sinners like you and me could be the fruit of his saving work. There is one nation under God that's indivisible and unconquerable. And it is the people from all generations who choose God, whose God is the Lord through faith in the promised coming King, King Jesus. That's the kingdom that will never fail. That's the kingdom that will never be divided. That's the kingdom that endures forever. In verses 13 through 15, the idea that someone or some nation might avoid bowing down to the Lord or might escape his notice is squashed. The Lord is not some idol that we can tame or control or manipulate or avoid. No, this God, the true God, looks down from heaven. Literally, he has looked down intently from heaven. It is a a fixed reality. There's nothing that will ever happen that God has not seen. And he looks down where? From where? From where he sits enthroned 
the first part of verse 14. In other words, the greatness of men's might is no match for God's omniscient gaze and his omnipotent post. The Lord has perfect knowledge of all humanity, all the children of man, and he sits in perfect power. The seat of his power is not on earth, but in heaven. So his standard and his judgments cannot be overthrown. We can't make up our own system. Whatever God says is what goes. And what we learn in verse 15 is that the heart of all, meaning each and every one, matters in the Lord's sight. The Lord fashions or molds hearts. Hearts that are softened by the gospel and run to him are rescued. And hearts that are hardened like Pharaoh's to the things of the Lord are eventually even hardened by the Lord himself. And the Lord never gets it wrong in his assessment of hearts. He knows every heart and he observes or weighs or considers each and every deed of every person. No one, here's the point of verse 15, no one will ever stand before God in eternity and be able to say, God, you got it wrong about me. You misjudged me. Oh no. God sees all. He knows all. He's over all. He fashions hearts. God gets it right every time. And if we're honest, we know that that poses a really big problem for each and every one of us. Does it not? He weighs every single deed. There's nothing that we've done in secret that God hasn't already seen. What's our problem? Romans 3.23, all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. And the wages of that sin is, is death. We've done things and said things that, that do not align with God's desires or His design, and such deeds lead to death and separation from His loving presence forever and we are powerless to rescue ourselves we're powerless that's the point of verse 16 kings of this earth can amass great armies and warriors can work out every day they could never miss leg day but it will do them no good in the battle that matters Men can seek refuge in military might, but they can't escape the gaze of the Lord who judges every heart perfectly. Kings will play their games and citizens will be sidetracked by temporary and ever-changing dynamics of international politics and war. But verse 17a, the war horse is false hope for salvation because no country and no military and no army is any match for King Jesus who will return in righteousness and judge all once for all. By the way, how does Jesus come back? According to Revelations 19, Revelation 19.11, he comes back on the white war horse of victory. All these armies, all these pretenders, all these games of politics down through the generations will be as nothing in a moment when King Jesus comes back. He sees every heart and every deed. And we can busy ourselves with battles in this world that don't matter and end up dead. Or we can apply ourselves to the good news that we find in verse 18 through 22. What is that good news? If we want to live and have life in this troubled world, if we want to have a reason to learn and sing new songs of praise with joy and with volume... We got a hope in the Lord, verses 18 to 22. We got a hope in the Lord who delivers all 
who trust in him. Verse 18 begins with an, an abrupt interjection signaling the arrival of hope. The reason for singing the new song, behold, look here, check this out. That's how verse 18 starts. Look at this. Yes, the, the Lord sees all. Verses 13 to 15, but in a special way, in a protective and delivering way, his eye is on those who fear him. Who are those that fear the Lord? How do you know if you fear the Lord? Look at the second line of verse 18. Those who fear the Lord are not terrified of him, rather they hope in his steadfast love. What does that mean then to fear the Lord? It means you've abandoned all the false hopes and placed all your hope in God's basket. They respect God, the Lord God, in whom they can place real hope. The Hebrew word for steadfast love is kesed. It means mercy or loving kindness or covenant faithfulness. It means God loves and keeps his promises to those who hope in him. And he's, he's got his eyes specially fixed on those who belong to him because they fear him, they hope in him, they, they believe in him. I was trying to think about how to illustrate this, this concept that God has his eye especially on those who belong to him by faith. And I, I thought about when I used to take my kids to the beach when they were younger. Has anybody done that? Did you know when you go to the beach with young kids, it's not a vacation? Has anybody told you all that? I, I didn't realize that, but when you have kids, you stop taking vacations and you start taking family trips. Until they get old enough to swim and take care of themselves. And so, I mean, because you got these little rugrats and there's an ocean right there. <laughs> like the tide's coming in, right? So my, what do I do for, for six days? I'm sitting on the beach and I'm just staring at my kids. And then a wave knocks them over and I'm running out there. It's okay. You won't die. I can see everything on that beach in front of me. I knew what was happening all around me. But as soon as my son or my daughter was in danger, I reacted. If you belong to God by faith, in an infinitely greater sense, you have a daddy on the shoreline watching. He sees every move. He sees every wave. He knows every battle. He knows every storm. And sometimes he lets the battle rage to deepen your trust in him. Because he knows you're okay. He's got you. And other times he runs and pulls you out. In a much greater way than this dad on the beach this is what our God is like towards those who hope in Him. Not towards those who are sinless, towards those who hope in Him. And what does this hope look like? Look at verse 19. What does the Lord do for those who hope in Him? He, he delivers our soul from death. 
19a, and he keeps us alive in famine. God wins. God delivers. He conquers death by coming to take our place in death and rising on the third day to give us a share in his life forever. And there's no money and there's no military that can deliver you from this death. God alone can save, and he will. In between the times of when we first hope in the Lord and when we see the Lord face to face, what does God do? He provides for us even in seasons of famine, verse 19. Until Jesus returns or calls us home, we will face seasons of famine. Maybe not physical famine, but seasons where our absolute need for the Lord's gracious provision to sustain us becomes abundantly clear to us because we run into a roadblock at work, we encounter something in our family, and it leads us to cry out to the Lord God alone as our only hope. It's a season of famine that's brought on whether through disease or distress or depression. Did you know God will feed you in the famine? The Israelites walking through the wilderness get manna from the Lord. The Israelites, by the foresight of Joseph, who was sold into slavery, it looked like a problem, it looked like a bad thing, but God rose up Joseph and gave him dreams to provide food and resources so that Israel could come and be fed when they would have no other way to be fed, and eventually we get a savior out of Israel because God fed them in a time of famine. He sustained the prophet Elijah through the judgment against wicked King Ahab in 1 Kings 17. And in Jesus' parable of the prodigal son, do you remember the parable of the prodigal son? We all remember it. He finally comes to his senses and he comes back to his father. But there's a little phrase in there that we miss as Americans because we don't suffer famine very often. But if you live in a, in a majority world country, you'll, you won't miss this. It's when the famine came that he came to his senses. Some of you are in a battle. God's trying to get your attention. That the only nourishment that will sustain you in the battle until he comes and you see him face to face is the Lord. You need his provision. He's begging you, he's beckoning you to to run back to the father. And what does the prodigal son find when he runs back to the father? He finds that the father is at the front of the house staring down the road waiting for him to come back. This morning, maybe... You're in a season of spiritual famine. Maybe you've forgotten the Lord who is worthy of our praise. My encouragement would be to once again hope in the Lord and look for His deliverance. Give the battle to Him every day, every hour, because He's already won the battle that matters most. Who's supposed to sing a new song? People who hope in the Lord. People who open the Lord for deliverance from death and provision of li- in life. And in verse 20 and 21, we see what it looks like to hope in the Lord. It means to be patient. We wait for Him. We don't give up and run to other bogus saviors. We wait knowing He is truly our help and our shield. And help there doesn't mean God helps those who help themselves, right? It means God helps those who realize they're helpless. Our dryer stopped working last week. I put something on Facebook about it, and a brother in our church family messaged me and said, what's wrong with your dryer? I'm like, it's squeaking like crazy. He's like, I'll be over. I'll help you. You know what that means? He did what I had no idea what to do. 
I didn't know how to get the lid off the thing. He didn't, he didn't help me. He saved me. That, that's, that's the image of God here being our help and our shield. When we are helpless and we're defenseless, He protects us and preserves us even as we wait through spiritual warfare on Him. And in verse 21, we are glad in Him even when the world is going crazy because our hope is not a hope that's anchored in the world. It's anchored in God who is over all. And it's not a hope that it's in our authority, but it is in His holy name. We trust in His name, a name that is above every other name, a name that is separate and holy and that represents who this psalm reveals God to be. Righteous in character, omnipotent creator, unfailing in His counsel, with a perspective that is overall, and therefore we can hope in Him. He will not fail. He won't fail. And then as our worship team comes, I want you to see verse 22. In a world that's falling apart and headed for death and dead set on destroying God's people and our faith, what do we do? We look to the Lord and we wait on Him and we hope in Him and we trust in His holy name. We believe that He is greater than all the forces of hell and death allied against us. And we know that He will deliver us. And yet, in the middle of that, between believing in God and seeing the Lord face to face, what do we, what do we need? We need to know His presence. We need to know His love. And so how does the psalmist conclude? I need more than the facts. I need more than head knowledge. God, I need you. I don't just need to know about you. I need to know you. And God, in the middle of this battle, in the middle of this struggle, in the middle of this challenge, look what the psalmist says. God, I, I'm going to lift a, a, a new song to you. I'm going to praise you for who you are. I am going to hope in you. I am going to believe in you. But, but as I believe the facts about you, as I know how great you are, God, don't let me miss verse 22. Let your steadfast love, O oh Lord, be on us, even as we hope in you. Let me know your love, God. Let me know your promises and your power inwardly, Lord, as we trust you, as we sing, as we shout for joy because of who you are. Let us know your love. Let us know that in the storms of life, you're like a father planted on the shore watching his children. This morning, I don't know what battle you're in, but God does. And I know the God who is over it and the God who delivers, and the God who loves you. And if you need to bring a battle to him this morning as our praise team begins to sing, and we stand in just a minute, don't hesitate to do business with the Lord. Would you pray with me? God in heaven, we thank you for the promise of Psalm 33. We thank you that you haven't just done what is necessary for us to get to be with you one day in a new heavens and a new earth, but God, you have done what is necessary to forgive our sins and open the door for us to know your love right now, even in the middle of the mess of our lives. So God, I pray you would shine forth in every heart and that you would do whatever you need to do so that we would know you in truth, 
know you as God and as our great and good Father. I ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. Thank you for listening to the North Roanoke Podcast. You can connect with us at northroanoke.org or download our app in your device's app store. Just search for North Roanoke. We hope to meet you soon.